Earlier this year, I traveled to the west coast of Ireland. It's one of my favorite regions of Ireland, and I'm super lucky to have a close friend who has lived there for years as my personal guide whenever I visit. Before I headed there this year, I, of course, did some reading. And something I noticed is the words that are used to describe this part of Ireland. You see lots of cliches like wild and remote appear in articles, blog posts, and social media posts. These descriptions are commonly applied to places that are considered rural. I actually see these descriptions applied to my own province, Ontario, all the time. They might seem harmless, but often these descriptions can play into misconceptions about places that we ourselves don't live in or know very well. Today, I'm chatting with Cassie. Cassie lives in Glasgow, Scotland. She hosts the travel podcast Wild for Scotland, and she writes the blog Watch Me See. Cassie is tired of the language that's used to describe some regions of Scotland, and so today we're going to unpack that and talk about the importance of centering local voices and narratives in travel content. Okay, so this is your reminder that if you aren't already subscribe to the show, then go ahead and hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because we have so many more episodes coming this season. And trust me, you're going to like them. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We're at Alpaca My Bags Pod and Alpaca Pals. Please leave us a review. Yes. That's a great way to get in touch with us. We love seeing what you have to say about the show, what you like, what you don't like. Just just write, write a little novel in the comments for us. Be honest, but be nice. Also, you can DM us or even email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the show notes. Erin, you actually just got back from Ireland, as you mentioned. Please tell me all about it. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. I've been to Ireland a couple times. It's one of those places that I just keep going back to. And a big reason for that is that a close friend of mine, Megan Lagrandeur, lives in Ireland, has lived there for almost a decade. She's a super talented musician and has like an amazing music career going on in Ireland. And so whenever I go and visit her, it's just so amazing because she just brings me to all these beautiful spaces where people are playing traditional Irish music. And I just, I love it so much. Ugh. Ugh. It looked like such a fun it trip. It really was. So I have to tell you about something special that happened. So Megan and I always joke about how I have Irish heritage. It's like such a Canadian thing. All Because like so many Canadians <laughs> have Irish heritage. And as most people know, like my mom is like very Dutch. But my dad's side... You're like the most <laughs> Dutch person to me. So I think because I grew up in a family where our Dutch heritage like took up so much space, my dad, like whenever he could get it in, he would be like, but remember <laughs> kids, like we also have Irish heritage. but so a little fact when Irish people were immigrating to Canada a lot of the time when you arrived in Canada they would ask you to remove the O on the front of your name so my last name which is Hines it originally would have been O Hines and this was just one of those immigration things when you really think about it it's really shitty because they're just trying to get people to like conform to like Canadian norms at the time Um, so we had to drop the O I bring this up because the O'Hines clan in Ireland is a thing and has a lot of history. And there is a castle that would have belonged to my clan. Um, Oh, my God. That's amazing. Did you go visit it? I did go visit the castle. It was actually my second time visiting the castle. I had to do it for my dad. My dad needed that photo of me in front of the O'Hines castle. It's actually called Dunguerre Castle. And it's in Canberra. Okay, that is so cool. Is it empty, though? So, like, no one lives there, obviously. Okay, so then that means you have squatter's rights there and can just (laughs) claim it as your castle, technically, right? Because it's it's a family heirloom. I would not be against that. I don't know how comfortable it would be to, like, live in this castle because it was built in 1520. I don't think it has great heating. (laughs) But it's actually now been restored, and they do they do medieval banquets there. <laughs> so what would you say are the highlights of your trip then? 
And also, like, would you suggest people travel there in general? I mean, there's a reason I keep going back. It's not just because my friend is there. I mean, that's a big reason. Also, obviously, my Irish heritage. Mm -hmm. I have to go back. And your own homestead Um, there at this point. (laughs) But I do genuinely love everything about Ireland. I think, like, an interesting observation from this past trip is that the struggles that we are seeing here in Canada with inflation and the housing crisis are very paralleled in Ireland right now. I've very much noticed how much more expensive it is to travel there now. When I stayed there in, I think it was 2016, I literally looked up the receipt for my hostel dorm in Hostel World. I had paid 15 euro for a bed in a dorm. This time I paid almost 100 euro. That hurts my soul. For a bed in a dorm in Dublin. So expensive. So that's like less than a decade that the price has like more than quadrupled, which is wild. And yeah, in talking with Megan, who, you know, has lived through this inflation, she was just saying like, it's happening all over the country. What I found interesting is you would expect Dublin to be expensive. Most cities like that, like the central cities, they tend to be more expensive, Um, That's true here in Ontario. But what was interesting is even after leaving Dublin and going out to the smaller cities and towns, it was equally expensive there. Like everything, everything from like a beer to a meal was shockingly expensive. And I actually found that a lot of things were even more expensive than they are here in Toronto, which is pretty nuts because like Toronto is one of the most expensive cities in the world mm-hmm. to live in. Actually, on that note, sorry, this might be a bit of a random question, but like how does how did the pricing compare to your trip to um, Iceland? Because we know that that's notoriously expensive, but now at this point, everything seems expensive. So yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I actually told people after being in Iceland that I didn't find Iceland that expensive. Yeah. I remember you told me the price of a beer was like kind of ridiculous. Yeah, but it was pretty close to what you pay here in Toronto. And I would actually say it was like on like the prices are on par between Iceland and Ireland almost. Iceland might be a tad more expensive, but I think beers in Iceland were 10 or $11. You like easily pay that for a beer in Toronto and easily in Ireland as well. So it's kind of interesting seeing this disruption in like these prices that like have historically been quite different. But yeah, if you're going to Ireland, I guess this is a warning. Just be warned. It will be expensive. Just save up. The best thing to do is to book in advance and book especially your accommodations far in advance. Traveling in the off season is also better. I also found, because I was in Dublin twice on this trip, and the first time I was in Dublin, I was there in the middle of the week. And then the second time I was in Dublin, I was there on the weekend, and the price for accommodation was like very different. So I think if you're flying into Dublin, going like in the middle of the week will save you a bit of money on accommodation. And yeah, leave Dublin. Just leave Dublin (laughs) and see more of Ireland. The West Coast is incredible. This time I went to Doolin Cave, which I had never done before, um, which is part of the Burren region. And it was mind-blowing. You climb like 125 steps down, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're climbing down it, you're like, oh, we're going real deep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they have Europe's largest stalactite. Ooh. Stalact. I don't know how you say that word. Stalactite? It was cool, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the last thing I need to say is that if you go to the west coast of Ireland, you need to go to one of the islands in Galway Bay. Okay. Inishmore is just, it was my second time on Inishmore, just amazing. You take a ferry across get yourself a bike. If you want to be bougie, do what we did and get an electric bike. It's really life changing. (laughs) And just cycle around this island. Ugh, I want to go back now. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to Alpaca My Bags. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start by sharing a bit about yourself and your work? I moved to Scotland about 10 years ago. I'm originally from Austria, from Vienna, and that's where I grew up and lived most of my life. And then I moved to Glasgow for university, for my master's degree, and was only supposed to stay for a year, and I'm still here. (laughs) I kind of just fell in love with the country and the people and the landscapes and just life here in general and found a way to make it work. And over the years, 
started exploring Scotland really in depth and really turning my passion for travel into what is now my career. I run a Scotland travel blog and a podcast and I also plan itineraries for people who come and visit Scotland, some for the first time or just wanting to see something a little bit different. Yeah, so I've made sharing my passion for Scotland into my job and it's been an amazing journey. Despite COVID, despite the pandemic, it's been a fantastic journey over the last few years. I traveled Scotland a couple years ago with a friend of mine who coincidentally on that trip said to me, I think I need to move to the UK. And a year <laughs> later he did and he hasn't come back. It's been five years. Shout out to Philip. Um, so I guess you're not the only one who's been sucked into the UK, Scotland, Ireland area because I know someone also who ended up living in Ireland. She's been there for 10 years and is becoming a citizen. There's something about this part of the world and I get it because I have been many times and I'm obsessed. But I wish I'd known about your blog when I was there because I feel like I missed a whole bunch of good things when I was reading your blog. There's always that return trip. That's never a bad idea. I'm Absolutely. all about the return trips. And I love that you're based in Glasgow. I actually started my trip in Scotland in Glasgow. And I remember people saying, oh, why are you going to go to Glasgow? Because a lot of people skip it. And my friend and I, who I was with, we both really loved the city. We felt like it was such a great place to start the trip. I was shocked that people don't like it. It's got a reputation that isn't always the best and that is rooted very deeply in history and kind of specifically the 20th century. But it's a lovely place. It's There's so many cultures coming together. There's a great music scene, great art scene. And you're so close to the Highlands. You know, when I go up onto my local hill uh, on the edge of the city, I can see the Highlands and the, all, all, not entirely, but almost the ocean. It's not too far. So you're kind of in a perfect spot to, to explore from here. Yeah. So much of your work is focused around writing and podcasting about Scotland. In your experience, what image would you say tourists coming to Scotland have of the country before they arrive? I guess, like, what are some common stereotypes about Scotland? It's funny because it's the exact opposite of what you might find in Glasgow, you know? You know, it's kilts, it's bagpipes, it's haggis, <laughs> it's yeah. highland cows wherever you look. A lot of people have misconceptions about the food and that it might be a bit boring or bland. People might imagine dramatic mountain ranges and, you know, quaint medieval towns. Everything kind of like like it used to be hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But not modern cities, not cities like Glasgow, for example, where there's a lot of glass office towers and, you know, modern life, normal modern life. They might imagine small villages, but not towns or, you know, ugly towns. You know, we have ugly towns like everywhere else in the world. It's a very kind of stereotypical way of looking at Scotland as a as a country of, the his, of history. And of course it is. There are... There's lots of history here, lots of historic sites and beautiful medieval towns and villages. But there is also another side to it. And I think that sometimes that gets a bit lost, particularly thinking about how Instagram influences how we envision or picture other countries. Scotland in particularly, I think, is just seen or shown as this wild place with dramatic nature, which again, it has it lacks that nuance of what else is out there. It's interesting you say that because I actually, as I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking there's actually a lot of parallels between the way that Canada is represented and the way that Scotland is represented because we're this country is also often just highlighted as being like wild nature and wildlife. and But yeah, so countries having tourism identities is something that we've talked about before on Alpaca My Bags. Um, I don't know if this is really a term. It's kind of one I just made up. I should Google and see if like other people are talking about this as being a thing. Um, but what I mean when I say tourism identity is the way that media, whether it's that country's own tourism board, their DMOs, bloggers, and even social media influencers describe and frame a destination so, for example, last season, we talked a bit about the identity of Canadian tourism. So when people promote Canada as a tourist destination, the focus is often, like I mentioned, on nature and wildlife, um, as well as some quirky things like poutine and Nanaimo bars, and of course, the famous Canadian politeness. 
But of course, this isn't very accurate when you're thinking about representing actual Canada. So all of this said, I'm curious if you have thoughts on how and why the tourism identity of Scotland is what it is, how it's become that way, and what's contributed. It's so fascinating, and I think that term is perfect. So if no one else is using it, definitely claim that term about <laughs> tourism identity. I think it's, it just encapsulates that absolutely brilliantly. I listened to that episode you did about the Canadian tourism identity, and it did make me think back to my own trips to Canada and draw... Even some parallels between, like you say, Scotland and Canada in terms of what they're famous for or what they're known for, but also some of the issues around that. Scotland has a lot of issues of exceptionalism. And I think in that way, it might have some parallels with Canada as well. You know, having a very dominant neighbour that is dominating the narrative of the region has its negative connotations in that way as well to, to make it easier maybe for a country like Scotland or Canada to brush over some of these things. In Scotland, a lot of this comes from hundreds of years ago. You know, it has historic roots in the Victorian era, particularly, um, going back to things like the Jacobite Risings, Culloden Battle, the Highland Clearances, times when being Scottish became a thing of shame, uh, became a thing of oppression. Scottish culture wasn't appreciated. Scottish culture was oppressed and forbidden in many ways. You know, speaking Gaelic, wearing clan tartan, wearing kilts. All these things were oppressed by the English Union, by the the English Crown. And people were driven from their land and and they had to move away from the country. They had to either leave Scotland entirely or they had to move from the countryside to cities. And I think those kinds of stereotypes really come from that time where the actual cultural identity was stripped away from people. The ironic thing is that within a hundred years it came back but in a romanticised way through romantic novels. Sir Walter Scott is a big literary name that that promoted Scottish culture in the 19th century. Uh, Queen Victoria was obsessed with the Highlands and the beauty of the Highlands and, and things like that. So it became this shell of itself almost through history and I think even though a lot of it has been reclaimed and there are people who lean into it with pride and a lot of these elements whether it's tartan or whiskey or kilts or Gaelic are coming back in a very authentic and and national proud way there's still this element of well this is what people want and this is what people expect so we have to give that to them and that's why there's your tour guides in a kilt stepping off the bus and things like that. Mm-hmm. I really resonate with what you just said, because I'm thinking now about like a lot of the quirky sort of like funny aspects of Canada that people talk about. And I wonder like if it's also a bit of this, this drive to like want to differentiate from the US. It's like, oh, these are these little things that we can say are different about Canadians, even though like realistically, like Canada and the US like aren't that different. I mean, we are, but culturally we there's a lot of similarities, but it's like we're looking for these these ways to differentiate ourselves. And often like they're just these sort of silly stereotypes, like the poutine thing and the politeness thing. But I'm curious how you and Scottish people, if you if you can speak to the experience of, of other people that you know, feel about this description. It's Weird and, and interesting for me to comment on this because I'm not Scottish, right? So I'm, I'm not from here. I came here with very probably stereotypical ideas myself about what Scotland would look like or be like. Like I said, I think there's a lot of people who really lean into that identity. And because some of it has been oppressed for so long, like the Gaelic language, that pride of leaning into these these elements of Scottishness is very understandable, but I think that line between where does it become a show for the tourists is is getting a bit blurred over over time. But I think there's also a lot of people, especially the ones who maybe not, don't work in tourism or hospitality, who are maybe a little bit embarrassed by the almost backwards resonating things that are associated with being Scottish, you know, who won't wear a kilt, who are not interested in the Gaelic language or where place names came from, who are just not that engaged with their own Scottish culture. And some might make that 
decision very consciously. And for others, it might also be an internalized issue of, of not appreciating the, the value of their own culture. So, yeah, it's, it's all a big, big mess. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like, it's hard to speak for like an entire nation of people and how they feel about this. Absolutely. So there might be Scottish people listening to this and being like, what's she on about? <laughs> <laughs> I totally disagree. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was really excited when you mentioned your interest in chatting about romanticization of rural and remote destinations, mainly because being a writer and a creator in the travel space myself, this is a trend that I notice all the time in travel blogs and social media. And I notice it about Scotland, but I also notice it about my home province, Ontario, as well as destinations all over the world. I'm hoping you could share some examples of the kind of language that you are describing and how it applies in places like Scotland? It's one of those topics, I think, there is a lot of awareness or increasing awareness, especially among travel writers, when it comes to countries of the global south or countries with recognised indigenous cultures. Whereas when you're talking about a country like Scotland that does have an indigenous culture with the Gaelic people, but it's not quite the same. So this 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 element of romanticization as travel writers becomes a lot bit harder to grasp I think with Scotland. But it is there. And it's there whether it's specifically about Scotland or just the wider region. Um just recently I listened to an interview with an editor of a big publication. Let's leave it at that. And they were talking about islands and how nice it is to explore islands and I love going to islands but she said something that really jarred with me and that was that it just is great to get that sense of being in the middle of nowhere and so she wasn't talking about uninhabited islands and even with those I think you have to be really really careful but it's that kind of language that suggests the absence of human impact whether that is positive or negative impact you know whether that is the history of the people who've lived there for thousands of years or the history of the people who managed to somehow run these islands into the ground and make them uninhabited. That kind of language that pops up in Scotland, particularly in relation to, you know, the Highland clearances and people being driven from their lands and a culture being oppressed, that, that is just, you know, you can't just ignore that. So that, that was one of those examples where she wasn't talking about Scotland, but the same thing happens here, particularly after the pandemic or, you know, at the back end of the lockdowns, rural destinations have kind of branded themselves as this place to escape. These wide open landscapes with hardly any people and you can get away and you don't have to worry about the virus and you don't have to worry about getting too close to communities or having a lot of people around you, which to an extent is all true. And some of these destin you know, some of these messages came from DMOs and, and tourism groups themselves. But it does, again, kind of reduce that existence of, of actually local communities and the people who live in these so-called rural escapes, where that is just regular life. I did a great interview with a woman who lives on the Isle of Canna, which is a small inhabited island off the west coast of Scotland. Only about 16 people live there. So it is a very, very small community. And she said one of the big misconceptions, and it's something that a lot of people do when they just talk about islands, is that people think that these small that living in these small communities is really calm and quiet and there's not a lot going on. Whereas the exact opposite is the case because with fewer people, there's fewer people who do all the jobs that need to be done in a small com that keep a small community running. So this this idea of moving to an island to hide away from reality or from busy life. It's just not a thing. It just doesn't exist. And, you know, I had to check myself because you internalise these ideas of what it's like when you live in a big city. I've always lived in big cities. I don't know anything different, but you do have to remind yourself that that is just not really reality. I feel like it's really easy to just 
say these descriptive words and not think about the nuance of, of what's behind them and what they really mean. And I think that's what I find happening a lot in travel writing. People will use these words without contextualizing them based on history and like the reality of life in a place. And part of it, I guess, is because they're not writing for the people that live there. They're writing to sell a place. And so part of it is like, we want to use this beautiful language because we want to sell to the reader that they want to go to this place. But it, I find it problematic because you're not selling reality. And to me, what's more interesting about travel is reality. I don't want to go to a place and like have a romanticized experience of it. And I know this is cliche to say, but I would rather like really experience it and like see the reality of a place versus like have this like romanticized experience. Mm. And I think the two aren't mutually exclusive. A place can be hauntingly beautiful and haunting at the same time. Yeah. You can you can describe how beautiful a location is or or a view or a village or a landscape while at the same time acknowledging how it got to be the way it is. One of my favorite places in the world is Glencoe in the Highlands and one of the best known historic events at Glencoe is a terrible massacre and the two coexist. It's beautiful, but you you have to know what has happened there as well. Yeah. I wanted to bring up a term that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I actually got in some fights with people on TikTok about this term. It's the phrase undiscovered and <laughs> hidden gem. <laughs> and I just, I find it really hard to explain to people like what I find problematic about it. I guess what it is, is it seems harmless, but I really feel this like colonial undertone in that kind of language because the reality is if you're a tourist, if you're standing in a place, the likelihood that you're the first person to discover it or be there is incredibly low. And I feel like there's a bit of erasure in using that phrase of like local people and especially indigenous communities who have probably existed and known about this so-called hidden gem forever. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm definitely guilty of using hidden gem, <laughs> probably overusing it. But I have I have other terms that and with discovering discovering an area I'm I'm with you one hundred percent I try and avoid that as much as I can, or you know bring the context in and say I discovered something that was new to me, or that you might have not heard about before, mm-hmm, knowing mm-hmm. who I speak to. But I like that angle because that that is true. Yeah, and I think it 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 acknowledges your position as the writer. It doesn't pretend that it's a universal experience for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I should really go back and look at my blog because I'm sure I've used these words. Like, I'm curious now because, you know, like I'm always learning. And when I first started blogging, I know that my travel writing was not good. I relied on a lot of horrible cliches. So, yeah, now I'm curious and I want to go back and look. I think we've all been there. Yeah, but the Should re- we make a whole episode about this, Erin? That's just throwbacks to you reading blurbs from your blog. I mean, I'm hoping that I've gotten rid of them all by now. That sounds terrifying. Because <laughs> um, I have a lot of anxiety about these things. As long um, as you don't see you're conquering a mountain, I think you're fine. <laughs> okay, but where I was going with this is I know that part of the reason we see this kind of language is, as a travel blogger, we know for SEO... It's interesting because those phrases often perform really well um, for search, which tells me that users, like travelers, are searching those terms when they plan to go somewhere. And then I also see these terms used like sort of in clickbaity ways on social media. So clearly, like people respond to this kind of language, which is bringing me to my next question. Why do you think people are so inclined to romanticize a destination using this language, not just the authors of content, but the consumers of content? That's a really good question. And probably one, again, I can't answer for absolutely everybody. But (laughs) when you were talking there, I immediately thought there's probably a lot of people who click on these things only to hate on them because they (laughs) know they're, you know, not good. Yeah. But I think there is an 
innocent side to it as well. And I think it's about, you know that this kind of language isn't the most appropriate to use. But you know lots of people are Googling it. Lots of people use that language to, to find the information that they're looking for. I think the only way we can get them to where you and I are, knowing that this isn't appropriate, is by meeting them where they are. Which means using that phrase to then hopefully explain to them or make them think, just give them a, a seed of thought why that isn't the best language to use. So use it in your, you know, use it in your uh, SEO title and, and in your keywords and whatnot, but then use the space that you have to try and challenge people on it. I believe in the good of people. The majority of people have probably never thought about it before. Just like, and I'm I'm the same as you, I, I would probably cringe if I go back to all of my earliest blog posts and I have revised many of them now that I've spent much longer in Scotland because I didn't know any better. It took years to kind of develop that kind of thinking and that kind of critical thinking about how we experience the world as travellers, as people who've moved to a different country and live there. It's okay to be at that stage as long as you're willing to go and question that. Mm -hmm. I love that strategy because it's one that I also use. For example, I recently wrote a blog post about what not to do in Iceland. And obviously I did competitor research. I saw what other people were saying not to do in Iceland. And a lot of it was sort of like basic things like don't take out cash because you can pay for everything by card. But then I made sure that my post was mainly about like responsible tourism concepts. So like being good to nature yeah, just sort of all the things that the other posts had missed. And so I found a way in the blog to sort of like share this message of like, learn some history, like be good to nature, do your research and all those good things. Katie, I think you have something you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for teeing me up, Erin. <laughs> it feels out of context now, but I was saying also, is it using the word undiscovered in your SEO then lead to it being kind of ironic that people are searching for undiscovered locations. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I know, the irony of promoting a hidden gem on the internet. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about stereotypes that people associate with Scotland but I'd like to squash them now. <laughs> so what would you say is a more accurate description of Scotland's rural destinations? And why do you think it's important that people know about this reality, especially if they're planning to travel there? So I think there is that element of natural beauty and the wild weather and dramatic landscapes that is all very, very true. And, and that's all there. But the majority of Scottish people live in cities and they live in cities in the central belt, which is Glasgow and Edinburgh and all the towns and, and smaller cities in between. Um, they're modern cities. Even Edinburgh outside of the old town bubble is a modern city. Scotland is really pioneering in terms of design, has been since the late 19th century. Uh, there's some great design museums and art schools and just modern stuff happening all of the time. But when it comes to rural destinations in Scotland, I think one thing that always strikes me is the amount of young people who manage to make a living in these rural communities. And I say manage very consciously because affordable housing is hardly in existence. Jobs are hard to come by. There's, you know, it's tough in many ways as a young person who doesn't have a huge financial cushion uh, behind them to manage to live in the rural countryside rather than moving to the bigger cities where it's a bit more affordable and easier to do that. But what I'm always so impressed by is the amount of young people who consciously make the effort to either stay or return or move to rural communities and do something to make those communities more sustainable, more whole, not just environmentally sustainable, but stronger communities and, and really building up that community around them. There's some great businesses I've come across over the years, you know, and artists who make 
beautiful art to send around the world. Lots of tourism businesses, of course, that I get in touch with because of my work, but also other people who just make it work and who are really interested in being part of communities and in creating a strong sense of community and place as well. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough and, and that their ideas aren't always the, oh, I'll play the fiddle and I'll weave some tartan and, you know, I'll have a hairy cow or whatever. But it's, you know, it's graphic designers. It's people who do incredibly interesting whiskey or gin. It's just people who have ideas and see the potential that the rural communities can offer them Whereas maybe in cities you, you might get lost in, in the mass of people doing similar things. And it's it's that, that to me is what Scotland is all about. And I know I live in Glasgow, but that's also what kept me here. Seeing an opportunity to create something for myself um, and, and being part of the community. And I may not live in the rural communities, but I work a lot with people rurally. I think that to me is the essence of what Scotland is about. That's awesome. And actually, you talking about design, like really reminded me of all the museums that I went to in Glasgow. And that entire time, I because it was the first few days I was in Scotland as well, I was just blown away by how much art there was in the city. And yeah, it's just such a shame that more people don't go and explore that part of Scotland. Yeah, and Glasgow is fantastic, because most of those museums are also free. That all goes back to Glasgow being the European city of culture in 1990 or 91. But a lot of these museums were created around that period and very consciously made accessible to anyone, freely accessible to anyone rather than charging, you know, 15, 17, 20 pound. Um, they are places that people can actually go and use on a regular basis. I am such a supporter of free museums because, you know, in Toronto, it costs like $30 to go to a museum. And my partner and I were talking about this recently, actually, because we popped into the ROM, which is a very famous museum in the city. Awesome museum. It's impossible to see everything in one visit. And we were just saying it's just so financially inaccessible, like especially if you are a family and you have children, one trip to the museum, that's like $100 and you'll only see a small portion of it. So to really see the museum, you would have to go multiple times, pay your entrance fee multiple times. I just think it takes away from the experience because there's something so beautiful about being able to just pop in every once in a while and explore maybe one little corner of the museum with no sense of urgency because you're not trying to like consume as much of it as you can with the like couple hours that you have. I could rant about this forever, but <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in Dublin and the museums are just, it's the same, it's free. I just would always love how like it would start to rain. And so I just look for the closest museum and go and <laughs> pop in. And it was just so lovely. Let's petition for Canadian museums to be free. I'll Katie. sign that. <laughs> <laughs> so stereotypes exist about every destination. And of course, that leads to preconceptions as well as misconceptions about places. So just in general, do you have any tips for how people can become aware of the preconceptions and misconceptions that they might have? Being open to examining your own beliefs and standpoints and knowledge to an extent as well is really important and I think that can sometimes be hard to do before you travel sometimes it happens on your trip or afterwards even my best kind of strategy against it is always to read up on a destination before you go especially now that I write stories for my podcast as well I try and read a lot more books about the places that I actually visit and if I don't read books, then I read articles or, you know, blogs by locals, things like that. And just really get particularly local perspectives on things and, and, a, and a wider context of the history of a place and what some of the issues might be that are very pertinent, but maybe not as obvious to a visitor. And just kind of sitting with that for a little bit, even if they make me feel uncomfortable. You know, I've come across places where I where you maybe think, oh, should I really go and visit there? Or is my impact going to be negative about it? 
So yeah, if you can catch that before, that's great. But if you can only catch it while you're traveling, that's also fine. I think staying longer in a destination to really immerse yourself and, and having different experiences, meeting different people and being able to speak to different people about their experiences um, is a really good strategy to kind of just understand what you think is true and what might not be true or what might be different in reality or what might have different perspectives really from from other people either reading uploads or then talking to locals i think those two are the 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 best strategies i would i would advise definitely agree and i also find because sometimes people will say to me oh i i don't know how to talk to locals like how do you meet people how do you get into conversation with people i don't know luke and i tend to find that like it happens organically especially for like eating in a restaurant or like popping into a bar those are like really easy social environments to meet people but i also have found staying in hostels is really good for that because hostels often employ local people and they're often the same age as us so it's just like a really easy ground to meet on But I was also going to mention just hiring guides for a day, going on some sort of tour. We were just in Belize and we had an incredible day with an incredible guide who just was so happy to answer literally every single question that we had. And he said to us, he was like, all I can tell you is like my perspective as like one Belizean, but that's still one perspective we didn't have before. So if you're nervous to chat with people, just hire a guide because they will definitely talk to you. Absolutely. I think that's one of the best ways to learn about not just the destination, but also just the reality of living in that place. In Scotland, it's very easy, particularly in Glasgow. Just go to the pub, you know, sit at the bar. I know it's a stereotype that the Canadians deal with as well, but people here are incredibly friendly (laughs) and they just want to know why you chose to come to their country. (laughs) (laughs) They want to talk to you. Of course, not everybody, but I've hardly ever gone to a a pub in Glasgow and not had a chat with someone I didn't know before. So yeah, I can confirm I had those experiences as well especially in Glasgow because I think like does Glasgow generally get less tourists than Edinburgh much less much less I remember noticing oh people really want to talk to us here (laughs) yeah it's increasing now but it's a very different vibe than Edinburgh and um, fewer tourists and people are just surprised anyone has an interest in their in their city and they're passionate to tell other people about how amazing it is here (laughs) Okay, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about solutions that apply to people who might be writing about or sharing their travels. And I say sharing their travels because obviously like bloggers and social media influencers, like we, I would hope most of us think about the ways that we're portraying a destination. But I think like just sort of your average tourist forgets sometimes that even if they have like 150 followers on Instagram, when you send out a post, you're still sending out information and perspective about a place. And so I actually think that like these tips apply to everyone, whether you're writing a caption or even just like an email to your family or you're a blogger with a million followers. So How would you say people should write about the specifically remote destinations that they visit? Are there like specific words that you say would say should be avoided or just sort of like best practices to follow? So there is a word that I absolutely loathe (laughs) and I try to never, ever speak it, but I'm going to say it now. And that is the word wilderness. Um, which is very often applied to the Scottish countryside and the highlands and the islands and the coast. And it is just fantasy. The highlands are not wilderness. The highlands are very much man-made. The fact that there are no trees covering most of Scotland is man-made. That's not natural. So wilderness is a word that I think if you use it, it has to be accurate. And it very often isn't. Because people have an impact on the landscape, even if it's not directly going and felling a tree, they might have drained a swamp or <laughs> built a dam or who knows. Um, so I think wilderness is 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 a tricky word to use and I avoid like the pest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, any language, and I'm sure this doesn't come as a surprise, any language that erases the existence of people or the impact of people. So 
describing a landscape as empty or undiscovered, as uh, you mentioned. That kind of language just is really problematic, I think, when we talk about an area that is inhabited or used to be inhabited um, at the very least. And, and so making sure that you acknowledge that in the way you talk about landscapes, you can describe it, but be, try and be accurate and try and, and, and acknowledge people in the landscape as well. People live here. Adding historical and cultural context, and I know not everybody is super into reading books or learning about dates or, you know, famous people of the past. I myself used to be like that. I was not, not very interested in history. But I think when you look at history in the broad brush strokes of humanity, that's where it gets really interesting, where you realise the connections between what happened 300 years ago and what happens today or how a landscape looks. So try and challenge yourself and do learn a bit about the history and the cultural context of a place and bring that into the way you talk about it or share about it. And don't just use a place as your playground, basically, but really engage with all aspects of the destination um, in, a, in a meaningful way. And in a sense, also thinking carefully about which areas to promote. This is something that comes up often and I think can be quite tricky to decide because you don't want to gatekeep. You don't want to be a gatekeeper who, who keeps destinations to yourself or locations to yourself or hikes hidden from people so no one else can enjoy them or not too many people enjoy them. So you don't want to go that far. But when I think about what areas to disclose and share about on my social media or in my podcast or on my blog. I think about how accessible are they? Um, would an increased number of people negatively impact that location? Is there enough parking? Is there local businesses nearby that I can mention as well and say, if you like this hike, go here? So it's, it's really about bringing in that thought process of how can I make sure that if I recommend this place and there's 10, 100, 1,000 people who visit it in the next month, how can that benefit the environment but also the people who, are, who live locally to there and not just the person who visits because it needs to be beneficial for everybody in order to be sustainable. I totally agree. And I love your point about thinking about the infrastructure of a place and whether or not it can actually support an uptick in tourism. And I also sometimes think about like, is it safe to tell people to come here? For example, I went to a hot spring in BC that was quite hard to get to. It involved driving down logging roads for nearly an entire day. And I decided not to write or post about this online because I thought, I don't know that people aren't going to hop in their little hatchback car and try to drive down this road and end up in the middle of the woods without a spare tire. But I think what bothers me is when people will post about a place but not geotag it and then not share anything about it and just say like, oh, look at this beautiful place, but I won't tell you about it. Like, if you're not going to share about it, then don't share about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that's where the gatekeeping comes in. And I think mm -hmm. it, it can be quite tricky to find the right balance with showing a moment of joy, but at the same time, not excluding anybody consciously. Okay, so I can't have you on this podcast and not ask you for tips. So... We're opening it up to hear your top Scotland tips. The floor is yours. This is impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think I think my first tip, just visit Glasgow. So many people skip it and they think there's nothing here to see because there's no medieval castle in the city centre. There is actually a medieval castle in Scotland, uh, in Glasgow. You know, there's a lot of places in Glasgow that are fantastic, that aren't as well known. Um, but even just the top attractions are just so much fun to visit and such a diverse range of things to do. The people are lovely, the pubs and the food are great, fantastic life music, both traditional and any other genre you can think of. It's a very international city. Um, Scotland isn't a particularly diverse country overall, but Glasgow is the most diverse city in, within Scotland. And then you also have a lot of international students. So there's loads of people from all over the world coming together, 
which means great food. <laughs> you know, lots of events that, that are happening. So yeah, definitely come and visit Glasgow. I want everybody to experience it. And I've hardly met anyone who didn't love it. One of my favourite places is called the Hanoi Bike Shop. It's a Vietnamese restaurant. It was recently bought over, but they are saying they're going to keep it the same way it is. So fingers crossed it will stay the same way. They make their own tofu and they do kind of tapas style Vietnamese food. So it's really fun to go there with a few friends and share loads of dishes. And, and it's just brilliant. I love that place. And when it comes to Scottish food, there's a lot of really good restaurants. One of my favourite places is called Babiti Bowster which is actually more of a pub. You know, it's pub food. It's not super fancy, but it's good Scottish food. And most days in the afternoon, they have an open music session where locals can come and play trad music together. And I think anyone can join in. I don't play an instrument, so I've never tried. But it's just such a nice atmosphere because you sit in this pub with really big windows, really bright and airy, great food, good drinks, and you've got random people sitting around a table playing fiddles and drums and the guitar and it's just the most quaint experience you can have and you're in the middle of a big city so that's that's one of my favorites oh you're making me want to come back to Glasgow <laughs> I actually remember too having really good Indian food in Glasgow oh, there's great Indian food well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Before you go, could you let everyone know where they can find you and your work? Yeah, so you can find my podcast, Wild for Scotland, anywhere you listen to podcasts, really. And my Scotland blog is called watchmesee.com, um, S-E-E. And I use both of those handles on social media as well, although more Watch Me See than my podcast social media which I feel a bit guilty about but yeah you can find me on watch me see most days on Instagram <laughs> thank you for listening to the show if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app and if you're feeling extra generous you can leave us a five-star review or support us on patreon Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lore in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is Night Stars by Wolf Saga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. All right, pals, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode that unpacks how we can travel in a way that is better for people and for the planet. <laughs>